does a world-renowned expert in public health have in common with a less renowned actor, singer, songwriter? Not much. Until they find themselves at the same rather boring new faculty orientation, strike up a conversation, and discover their mutual fascination with the process of transformation. This show was born out of my chance meeting in 2019 with Dr. John Lyons, director of the Center for Innovation and Population Health at the University of Kentucky. I'm Kristen Sorelli. Welcome to Shift Shift Bloom. In this introductory episode, I chat with Dr. John Lyons about what inspired the podcast and what's coming up this season. I'm here today with Dr. John Lyons. Welcome, John. Hello, Kristen. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Good. I guess the first question I have is just tell me about the inspiration or the impetus for this podcast. Yeah, so we're working all over the world at this point, uh, a lot in the U.S., but a lot in other countries as well, uh, helping systems change and helping, particularly in behavioral health and child welfare, uh, helping those systems try to be as effective as possible. And what's clear is that we're understanding a lot about people, but there's still a lot that we don't know about how people actually change. So there's all sorts of theories, there's all sorts of therapeutic approaches, there's all sorts of interventions, but when it comes right down to it, we don't always have a clear idea of what the factors are that lead people to be able to change their lives in ways that makes their lives more fulfilling. So the idea of this podcast is to collect stories from different people in different places with different experiences to understand how they've changed and to understand how they see their personal change processes. I'm curious, I know a little bit about your world and I know you have some acronyms and, and one of the tools that you have is called TCOM, mm -hmm. Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management. So what got you interested I mean, the word transformation is in one of your tools. So what got you interested in change as a concept? Well, what got me interested is a recognition that the design of helping systems are not really about change. They're about paying people to spend time with people. When in fact, they should be about helping people change their lives in some important way. That's really what help is. And it should be. And so I've gotten rather interested in how do we actually create systems that are built to support people changing, not paying for 50-minute hours with a therapist, not paying for so many visits from a child welfare worker, but figuring out how to design a system that actually is incentivized to support people in a personal change process. And although that's really easy to say, it proves to be extremely difficult to do. I was going to say, it sounds really daunting. It's very daunting. There's all sorts of historical and uh, current reasons why people don't change, and even the change agents have trouble with their own change. So changing changers to help change is extremely difficult. Ironically enough, it should be, <laughs> one would think, that if anybody would embrace change, it would be people whose business it is to change. But actually, all change is difficult. And so changing systems 
to, to shift from a focus on service delivery into transformational management is no small task. I think one of the challenges, we don't really understand that much about how people change. So how on earth can we really design systems to support personal change until we fully grasp all the different pathways different people can take in their journeys towards uh, becoming better people, better versions of themselves, mm-hmm. and whatever they mean by that. So make that link for me as a, as a lay person, sort of the relationship between change and population health. So population health is the idea of, you know, there's all sorts of social determinants of our health. So it goes outside of the medical services. You know, health services is one thing, but being healthy and having high well-being is a whole different thing. There's all sorts of different factors that aren't directly a part of the healthcare system that influence our community's health and well-being. And so the idea of population health is to help communities, to help people within those communities to live lives that are full, that are healthy, that have well-being, they're happy. Um, And how do you actually create that? Typically, that involves people making some choices to overcome some challenges so that they can reach that goal of being happy and healthy and safe. So, and particularly when you start adding social determinants, those are things that disadvantage people. It makes it that much harder for them in their journey towards health and well-being. Unpack that so, social determinants. What, what what are some examples? So that's things like, you know, if you're homeless, if you don't have stable housing, it's much harder to have a good nutrition, you know, have food security, have uh, adequate health care. You don't even have housing, right? So if the weather is bad, uh, then that's a challenge for your health and well-being. Um, so just in those sorts of ways, there's a number of different factors that are uh, included in that. If you have uh, depression, sometimes it's harder for you to take your medication because you don't really have a positive outlook on life. And so somebody who's got both diabetes and depression is harder for them. They have a bigger obstacles to work through in order for them to maintain their Uh, insulin regimen, for instance. So there's a number of different factors that influence health outside of just the physiology of health. Mm -hmm. Do you think that across the board, there's some incentive or some, something that motivates the average person, regardless of their baseline to change? I think there's some underlying desire from all of us to be the best people we can be. I think that uh, almost everybody has that internal drive. Some of us have greater challenges. Some of us even struggle with defining what that actually means. Uh, But I think all of us uh, want to try and be uh, the best person that we can be. But we all start in different places and we all choose a different definition of better or the best person we could be. The definition of that is very personal. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a very positive lens, a very positive way of looking at the human condition is to say that you think we really all are, we all are striving to be whole. I mean, what does better mean? Well, I think that's where we get to conflict 
Yeah, I, I think maybe that's a part of where, and I think the definition of better will change across our lifespan, right? What we mean by better when we're eight years old is going to be very different than when we're 18 or 28 or 78. And so I think it's a shifting definition even for each of us personally. And so it's not a static definition. And it's certainly, if you go across people, there's a lot of different definitions. Most of our conflict in our culture is a conflict over the definition of what our better selves are. And not so much that we want to be better selves. I know a lot of people. I don't know very many people who don't want to be better versions of themselves. But getting there and defining that and having a clear vision of what that can be is part of the challenge of change. So I'm wondering, as you hear people's stories, how they crystallize their idea of what it means to be their best self. You know, what is their goal? What is their aspiration? What are they trying to achieve? I think that's such a great question. And I I wonder if, I wonder how many people can really articulate that. I think, I think maybe we all sort of have vague ideas or depending on how we're strung, some of us visualize this better life or mm-hmm. some of us write about this better life or some some of us just have a sense of what the better life would be. But to actually articulate who is my best self is its own special little task. And I, I don't think we don't really get asked that, do we, in, in life? Yeah, not a lot. And I think maybe it's actually a feedback mm-hmm. loop and that we don't really know clearly what that is until we start trying towards a certain vague direction. And it's actually the feedback that we get by trying to move in a particular direction that we help help ourselves define it. Because I think it's a fairly close to impossible task for any of us to sit at any moment and clearly articulate, this is what it'd be if I were a better self. I think we begin to think about it, we can, but I think a lot of it is a feedback loop based on our experience and the feedback we get from others and our worlds too, our environment in terms of our change processes. You know, there's a, there's a famous uh, psychologist, Anders Ericsson, who talks about the 10,000 hour rule and to be in, in his model, to be an expert at anything, you have to spend at least 10,000 hours with feedback. And so if you want to be an outstanding pianist, if you want to be an an Olympic ice skater, 10,000 hours with feedback. So I think the key thing to learning is this feedback and the key to each of our own journey. We all get 10,000 hours. That's that's not all that much Mm -hmm. time. That's about by the time we get to the age of reason or so that we're awake for 10,000 hours. Um, uh, So... The question is what kind of feedback we get and how we learn from our feedback and how we evolve ourselves based on that kind of interaction with the world. And I think that's how we end up defining our idea of what we want to do to be a better version of ourselves. When you talk about feedback, is that both external feedback, like the idea of, you know, an Olympic athlete getting feedback from a coach um, or getting feedback, yeah. honestly, from their scores, from judges, right? But is it also an yes. internal thing? Absolutely, yeah. So you can feel, if you're a, a very experienced musician, and even probably when you're starting out, you could you know when you hit the wrong note. You can hear it, you get, you're getting that internal feedback. Um, you can feel from your body things that are working and things that are not. You can feel from your own 
anxiety. You know, when I first started working, I was a horrible public speaker and I would get very, very anxious. And I'd be giving myself feedback on that anxiety. I learned how to manage that so that I could control it. And then you learn that you have to, you can't not be anxious because anxiety gives you energy, it gives you passion. But you just have to learn how to take that feeling and channel it into animation as opposed to into paralysis. So I think it's that's a feedback process. You just have to learn from that. So. What were some changes that you made when you moved from paralyzing anxiety in public speaking to your level of comfort now? Well, actually, there was a yeah, there was a, there was a sentinel event actually. Uh, two things that happened. One was a sentinel event. One was a precipitating cause. We call it in science. And the other is more of a maintaining factor. So the precipitating one is that I was a very nervous uh, speaker. I would write out my talks and I would read them. And so I was a brand new PhD and I got invited for a job talk at Virginia Commonwealth. Um, and I wrote out my talk and it was right when they introduced smart lecterns. And so this, the lectern controlled everything. It was back in the day where we used uh, slide projectors. Yeah. It was before PowerPoint, <laughs> it was even before overheads, right? So we had these slides that we we created and, they, and you just click forward the slides like an old, like your grandparents' travel show, you know? So um, <laughs> it was it was like that, right? And so the lights went down, but the day before I lost my voice. So I had laryngitis and the lights went down and I didn't know how to operate the smart lectern. So I didn't know how to turn on the light of the lectern. And so I couldn't see my notes. So I literally broke the dock into a lavalier and I did the entire talk like this, right? And I didn't get the job, but I decided that nothing worse could have possibly ever happened to me. I didn't die. Yeah. I made it through the talk. I was able to talk extemporaneously, even though I sounded like a, a very sick frog. Um, so I was, I was never anxious after wow. that. That pretty much cured me of the anxiety because like, okay, I was imagining something bad happening. Nothing really bad happened. The other thing is I had a number of early career mentors who were outstanding speakers. And what I learned from them is that you just have to be yourself. If you're just your genuine self, whoever you are, so I'm a little bit of a smart aleck. So, so long as I can embed the being a smart aleck into my talk, I can be myself and that becomes um, genuine. And so I think those two things together have really helped me uh, become a better public speaker. Mm. I did learn that I, after I had this, that disaster in uh, Richmond, Virginia, I did learn that I got too relaxed. And if you're too relaxed, then you're not a very good speaker because you're boring. So I actually taught myself how to agitate myself. So I used the the autogenic prompt from the old movie, uh, All That Jazz. So the Bob Corsi character would say before he went out, he'd say, it's showtime. So I would actually say that to myself, it's showtime. And then that would, I'd use that to generate enough anxiety to work myself up into a level of animation that was desirable for the audience. So you're speaking right into the feedback loop and actually ha that it's That's kind of, feedback loop. It's, a, it's an ongoing process. You know, you, you're never, perpetual. Yeah, you're sort of at the soundboard moving the right. dials to get to that yes. balanced or ideal per place of performance each time. Um, I'm yeah. curious about something you said about causal analysis, because I, I think I asked mm -hmm. you 
about the science of change, but tell us a little bit about those things that impact change that, that we can kind of pinpoint from outside. Yeah, traditionally we've sort of divided, you know, science, they talk about predisposing factors. So these are things that sort of exist before you decide to change. This is just who you are. Like, for instance, you know, when I was uh, 20 years old, I was six foot tall and weighed 127 pounds. I would never be a sumo wrestler, <laughs> right? So there's no way. It's not possible. It's not within my array of possible life outcomes that I could choose to become a sumo wrestler. So those are predisposing. You know, who are you? You know, what's your biology? What's your intellect? What's your capacity, right? Uh, then there's precipitating causes. And that's the, you know, the old song, this, the straw that breaks the camel's back. Now, precipitating causes are the things that we typically give the most credit to because they're, they tend to happen right before a change happens and they're usually vivid events. Uh, so like my horrible speech in Richmond, Virginia, I see as a precipitating cause of releasing my, reducing my anxiety, but that's just one factor. So predisposing I do have the gift of gab, right? So I, I'm always been a talker. I just was nervous about talking in front of other people. So underlying my anxiety was the ability to talk mm. uh, spontaneously. So once that's released by freeing up the anxiety, then of course I can talk. And then the maintaining causes are things that support change once they've occurred. So those are different. Those are a different set of factors. And sometimes this is why people who are recovering from alcoholism or drug abuse can't sometimes associate themselves with their old friends because their old friends don't help them maintain their change. They want to bring them back to their using days, back to what they're like. So oftentimes when you have people giving up alcohol or drugs, they also have to give up their friendship network, their, their acquaintances, their friends, the people they hang out with, because without maintenance support, it's very hard to maintain that kind of change. So those are the three main classes of, uh, of causal fat considerations that as we think about our own change, you know, what's our range of possible aspirations or behaviors? What are key events that kind of can trigger us? And then how do we think about things that support us ongoing so that we can maintain any changes that we make? Is there, as you, as you think of those three categories, is one sort of across the board more of a challenge? Like, is it is it the maintenance of change that's more challenging or is it overcoming some predisposition? It, it depends, right? I mean, I, I don't think there's any clear rule. I think that typically people put way more salience on uh, the precipitating causes. And I think sometimes what happens is without a precipitating cause, it's hard to make a change, right? Without some event that helps you get motivated, it's sometimes hard. And so what you will see is some people actually precipitate their own event, right? They actually create a crisis in their life to uh, allow themselves to change. So that's probably the one that gets the most attention, okay. but it's not necessarily the most important. They're all important. And really to get a sustained where you actually start out as one person and you shift yourself to be a different version of that person, that takes all three. I'm curious if you think change, like this idea of becoming better or your, your, your better self or your best self, does that person exist already 
inside most of us. And some of the work is like taking down the masks or the pretenses that we've learned in socialization, or is is the change really necessary to be to become that person? That's a but that's a great question. <laughs> and I don't honestly know the answer to that. I think maybe perhaps as we hear stories from different people, well, we can get a better sense of that. I think that would be interesting to know. I suppose if you're thinking about it from a predisposing sort of perspective, then yes, the possibility of that better self is always there, but it's not there until it's actually mm-hmm. there. So you, in some ways, it's not helpful to say it was there and you just opened it. It's, that, but that would, might, maybe that is helpful. Yeah, there's something almost sort of magical about that kind of thinking like you you just right. ma- waved your magic wand and your your you know your best right. self sort of appeared and it sort of could discount the the real work that change yes. demands yeah and that's sort of the whole problem that we have in terms of unpacking how we help people change is that there's a magical you know something and then a miracle occurs right there's this you know this opaque box you know there's all these inputs into our lives and then there's all the outputs, you know, our aspirations, our behavior, and what actually is happening inside of us is opaque. You can't really see it very clearly. And so I think there's more that we don't know than there is that we know. And so figuring that out, I think, is part of the journey that we're trying to embrace with this podcast. Yeah, I think I loved it when you told me about the black box. Is that what you called it? Right. That's the original name. That you can't see. So you can't see in it. It's opaque. You cannot see in it. So and that's most, even even like uh, the evidence-based practices in therapy, there's still this kind of process that you just can't see. And it's sort of like, and then magic occurs, you know, then a miracle occurs. And so something is happening outside of our ability to see it. And we can have people talk about it, but you can only get that first-person observation of themselves, which, of course, is not necessarily exactly what happens. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Kristen Sorelli, and I hope you're enjoying this introductory episode of Shift, Shift, Bloom and my conversation with Dr. John Lyons about his vision for the podcast. Your advanced access to this episode is our way of saying thank you for participating in the 2021 TCOM conference. You'll be able to listen to Shift, Shift, Bloom wherever you get your podcasts, So stay tuned for news about the launch of season one and watch your email for information about how you can unlock exclusive special features by becoming a patron. And now back to my conversation with John. Uh, Where, where was my brain? Oh, people should know a little bit about you and I and why I'm hosting this and, and the story of how we met. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Do you want to tell it? I can tell it, or you can tell it, or maybe we should both tell it, because it's probably a slightly different Mm -hmm. story. Yeah, so um, the very first day I came to orientation at the University of Kentucky, I went to a meeting of new faculty, and I'm the kind of person that if you make eye contact with me, I will talk to you. So you made eye contact with me, I started to talk to you, and I predisposing our conversation, I'm very interested in alternative strategies of helping people, and which I often think is really about building meaning in people's lives. It's about finding ways to think about things that are different. And so I was very interested in linking with 
um, people in fine arts around, you know, theater and arts as ways and music as alternative ways to help people express themselves and figure out better versions of themselves. And so when I learned that you were in the theater department, I thought, oh, this is a perfect example to start to build that network of people who have an alternative view of the world and of change uh, to facilitate us working together. So I was quite enthusiastic to have, and then it turns out you're a neighbor too. So it made it even right. easier. Now, of course, you're a friend. So Yeah, for me, it was exactly as you remember that we were st- loitering outside the space we were going to go into and I am an eye contact maker (laughs) by way of I think also overcoming some of my own uh shyness you know to just kind of push myself to the edge and so I think to, to sort of add a little personal you know anecdotal information onto that which we started to talk and we we started to see where there were possibilities for connections in our separate work. I think I was also, conscious or not, already wondering why I had made the change that I had made, which was to move from Oklahoma City, where I was teaching at a small private university, to move to Lexington to teach at this larger public R1 university. And so I'm always looking for signs and mm-hmm. and so this felt like actually, oh, this could be part of the reason why I'm here. That seems to ease or enhance the change process for me is feeling like yeah. without being able to articulate it necessarily that there is a path and I can kind of feel my way through it. But I am looking for sort of mm-hmm. signposts along the way. Yeah. That might just be how I'm strong as an actor, and, and we're, we're sort of um, nonlinear. We have nonlinear lifestyles by by demand, in a way, by circumstance. Right. But I felt that I was on the cusp, and still am on the cusp of some kind of change, and kind of looking for. I think it brings me to this idea of the relationship between change and collaboration. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, innovation is thought to be driven by cross-perspective collaboration. And change is just another word, innovation is just a fancy word for change, right? So, so it may well be that one strategy that we all use to help us ourselves change is to expose ourselves to different ways of thinking, different ways of being, different ways that people act. And that makes complete sense to me I think the idea of looking for road marks that you're on the right road makes perfect sense too. I mean, some people talk about that validating their decisions, right? That they they decided to do something. They're looking for experience that helped them believe, yes, this was the right choice. And so that's a part of the uh, maintaining causes of change, right? As you say, okay, I'm making this change. This is I'm better because of it. And I don't want to go back to where I was because I can see these positive things that are coming. Do you think culturally in this country we are resisting change or embracing change? Or I think it's extremely difficult to characterize us as a country universally because I think there's some pretty wide variability. I mean, there's wide variability across the human condition. Everybody changes. You know, I was talking, I was listening to a podcast 
uh, they were interviewing a paleontologist. I can't remember her name, but she made the, the comment that's from a paleontologist perspective, you know, they take the very long view that even a, a rock is an event because at some point in history, that rock didn't exist and then it exists. And then at some point it disappears. So a rock is an event, but people are events too. And, and so all of us are perpetually changing because we have a beginning, middle and end. We have our, if we're lucky, we might last a century, but that's kind of the top end. And every day we're changing a little bit. And so the change is permanent. Change is always there. It always will be there. But different people embrace change differently. And so if you begin to think about bigger changes, the changes like we're talking about where you see yourself in one way and you actively decide that you want to see yourself in a different way and you take steps in order to be the causal agent, that's hard. And some people like that. And some people don't like that. So I think what you see in our culture is you see the full range between people who embrace change and people who are shy to change or hesitant to change. And that's normal. Um, so that's just the nature of the human condition. It's sort of become the political expression here. So, But it's always been there. You know, it's, it always will be there that there'll be a range of the degree to which people accept change. You can probably move the dial in the middle of the population, but there's always going to be folks that try to keep everything exactly the mm. same. But the great irony of keeping things the same is you have to change in order to keep it the same, because otherwise you're going to be changing with a natural course of events. So staying constant, keeping your life the way it's always been, takes active change process. <laughs> so because you have to adjust your life to fit your changing age, etc. So, so a change is the one universal experience, but some of us like it, some of us hate it, and a lot of us are in the middle. Mm. Who do you know who's good at it? Who? Uh, I th well, I think the acting profession has a lot of people who are quite good at change, right? Because that's kind of, that's what attracts me to having you host this show is that I think, oh, the idea that you take on a character and you become that person in some way uh, for at least some period of time, I think that's a gift. That's the talent of acting. And if you're really good at it, then you know how you change yourself to be that character. You then walk away from that character and change yourself in a different way at a different time for a different purpose. So I think actors are actually trained to change. It may make folks in that profession are a little bit vulnerable because it's all the change. You know, I, like I worry about people like Heath Ledger uh, who, you know, changed in order to become this really, really unhealthy character. And then he never quite got out from under it. Um, so. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think, I think there's a spectrum there too, that there are, there are actors who are chameleons and they're expert mm -hmm. at change and they're good at it and they know how to use themselves as a vessel um, and then yeah. separate. And But then there's also actors who like play themselves all the time. <laughs> so right, the John Waynes of the world, right. Although if you notice on that, on that issue, somebody like Tom Selleck, who I think is an actor who plays himself, who he was changed over time, right? And so... Himself, he always played himself, but him, who he was, it just changed, yes. right? And so his blue blood character 
is still kind of who he is. Yes. But it's different than his Magnum PI character, yes. right? Because he's older. What but. about that word authenticity? Does that have anything to do with what we're talking about? It might. I don't know. I think where it might fit in, it goes back to your earlier question about do you have your better self inside you already and you're finding it. So that would be the argument that you're finding your authentic self. What's something you'd like to change about yourself? I would like to, well, I've been working on being healthier. Mm -hmm. So what I'd like to change about myself right now is to teach myself to eat better. So when I was younger, I stopped, you know, I travel a lot in my, in my career and I stopped turning in my meal vouchers for reimbursement because I would be mocked because I'd, I'd have McDonald's for breakfast and Burger King for lunch and Taco Bell for okay. dinner. So I have over time gotten better at that. I've gotten healthier in a number of different aspects of my life. You know, I've walked 10,000 steps a day. I do those kind of things, but I still don't really eat healthy, particularly when I'm, I'm not, when I'm by myself. So, um, so eating, you know, cooking and eating vegetables regularly was when I have to cut down on my sugar intake, but I absolutely love sugary food. So figuring out how to do that is my next big change. Mm. But good luck to me. I'm not sure. It, I don't really want to, except I know that I'd be mm. healthier if I do. So I haven't really kind of wrap my head around the precipitating event. Perhaps. Or, or as you say it, uh, I've, I've, cooked single person meals for many years of my life. And there's definitely mm -hmm. something more enjoyable about being in collaboration in the kitchen. <laughs> so Absolutely. it's really challenging. In the kitchen is way better. Yeah. Yes, indeed. What about the, like the world at large? What would you like to see change? I would like to see us politically move to collaboration as a way of getting things done. I think that our current model of my way or the highway, regardless of where you're buying what what your way is, is not helpful. It's not healthy. It's not viable uh, because we don't live in a culture where we're in hundred percent agreement on things. So therefore one side can't win ever. And for us to believe that one side can win is a fool's errand. So I would like us to re-embrace the idea that we can all work together to find common ground and and help solve problems through collaboration. That's the C and T con, this collaboration. And that's not just kumbaya, right? I mean, that sounds nice, but it's also the only known strategy for managing complex systems. There's actually two strategies uh, for managing complex systems. So those are systems that involve multiple human beings. And one is hierarchical, so which is top down. And that's like, the, the military would be a classic example, or a surgical suite. You know, a surgical suite, the surgeon's in charge, and you want that to be the case because that's how you live through surgery, right? Is that they're in charge, what they say goes, everybody follows what the surgeon says. Um, same with the military, top down. But the only way hierarchical strategies work is if there's a single line of authority. And in most things in our country, there's never a single line of authority. So hierarchical solution. But that's why you see a call to a draw to authoritarianism is because there's this feeling like if we just had somebody in charge who told everybody what to do and they do it, then we'd be better off, right? There's a draw to that yeah. because that is one strategy for making an effective culture. Uh, but that's not going to be viable in our culture. And so the only viable 
alternative is collaboration. And that's getting everybody on the same page following, finding the shared aspirations, the shared, the community goals, and then working together towards those goals. And I think I would love to see us do a lot more work on that. That's how we spend our time is trying to get, you know, behavioral health and the justice system and child welfare system and vocational rehabilitation systems all work together towards the common purpose of helping people. Because that's really the only viable way to make a pluralistic society that doesn't have a single line of authority. It's the only way to make it work. So that would be my personal aspiration of a, of a worldview. Also daunting, <laughs> but very, also very, very positive. And I just, I wonder now if if you can fast forward you know, a few episodes imaginatively. And do you think that we will find patterns in in personal stories of transformation and personal stories of change? Will we find patterns for collaboration? Yes, I suspect so. I think what we'll end up finding is that while every story is different, they do have some common themes. And that our job is really going to be to listen to these stories, recognize, embrace, and celebrate their uniqueness but also see whether there's not lessons there for the rest of us. So, because I think you can't really apply somebody else's change process to your life, but you can probably apply some basic learning, basic lessons learned. So I like to think in terms of heuristics, which are decision aids that we all use, you know, that, you know, stitch in time saves nine. You know, that's a heuristic. The 10 commandments, those are heuristics. Thou shalt not kill, right? Okay, I'm not going to kill, right? So we just have these little decision aids that we use all the time. And I think there's probably some heuristics that we can pull from people's stories that people can use as a guide when they're faced with their own possible change decisions that they can use to say, okay, this might be the direction I would choose to go. So I think that's what I'll be listening for as I listen to people's stories, celebrating their own personal journey, right? Because that's unique. But I suspect there are some learnings that we can take from people's stories. Yeah, so in fact, it's it's like you're going to get feedback about yes. some of you're gonna the get things feedback. that you know or don't know in your own work from these personal mm-hmm. stories, which I think is why our collision is or, as an interesting one. And right. um, I look forward to hearing the stories. You've already, as a producer, done a great job gathering really interesting humans with really, uh-huh. really powerful stories. And I won't give any of them away, but I think I think we're going to each learn a lot from our own perspectives, our unique perspectives, and we're going to have a lot to talk about in terms of our shared perspective. I agree. I think this is, this is exciting. I'm quite interested in seeing where this journey takes us. And there are some amazing people in the world that are just some amazing people. They have really amazing stories and they've done amazing things in their life. And I'm not, when I say amazing, I'm not saying like they've got the most hits on YouTube or they're they're viral or that they're famous. They're just people living their lives, doing amazing things within the context of their lives. So we won't be bringing in famous people. It's not a celebrity thing, but it's really about people living their lives and living it to the fullest they can. I think that there's so many potential people to hear from. Yeah, and I think also giving those people the opportunity to try to articulate where they started and where they are now and how they got there. Because I think most of the time we skip that question in life. 
Yeah. Mm. We don't really reflect. So. Well, thank you, John Lyons, for, for spending this sure. time with me. And I will look forward to hearing more from you during this uh, inaugural season of Shift to Shift Bloom. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, Kristen. Good luck. Enjoy the stories. Thank you. Shift Shift Bloom is made possible in part by the Prade Foundation, a nonprofit organization committed to improving the well-being of all through the use of personalized, timely interventions and provider of online training in the TCOM tools. TCOM is Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management, a comprehensive framework for improving the effectiveness of helping systems through person-centered care. Online at PradeFoundation.org and at TCOMConversations.org. And by the Center for Innovation and Population Health at the University of Kentucky. Online at iph.uky.edu.